Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. I'm Anthony, and I'm an alcoholic. Picked a good night for this, having people dressed up in 70s gear. Helps the nerves a little bit. So, um, my sobriety date is April 16th, 2021. So, almost 17 months ago. So, uh, tonight I will talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So, start at the beginning. My first encounter with alcohol, I was about 14, 15. Uh, I was at a friend's house. I was spending the night there. And, um, you know, the next day we got into his parents' liquor cabinet. And we got a... I'm pretty sure now it's liqueur, um, not liquor. It was butterscotch. It was the worst thing. Anyway, we we drank it all, and we're just gone at like 10 a.m. And uh, my grandma, who raised me, I'll get into that, but um, she picked me up, and I wasn't feeling good. And she's like, what happened? I was like, oh, we paid, uh, you know, pick up football, and I got tackled, so like right in the stomach, so I really don't feel good. And then, uh, sure enough, I had her stop, and I just threw up out the side of the white minivan that she picked me up in, and just smelled like butterscotch, and to this day, I can't smell butterscotch. I hate that smell. <laughs> so, uh, I mentioned that I grew up with my grandma. That's because my mom also suffered from this disease. Um, she also had outside issues with drugs. But um, she was in and out of jail uh, throughout my childhood, and I actually never met my dad. Um, she like threw him out while she was pregnant with me and through a lot of things, you know, just mostly, you know, just not being there um, and throwing parties and stuff that's not appropriate for a baby or a toddler. Uh, my grandma would have to come and get me. And eventually I just ended up staying with my grandma and she, uh, she adopted me when I was about eight years old. So um, growing up, you know, it was a little different. I didn't have the nuclear family that's common in Kansas city where I grew up. Um, but you know, it wasn't really that, that I felt made me different. It was more like I just couldn't fit in properly. Um, you know, I had like one really close friend growing up. Um, but the rest of them, I felt like I had to put on airs with everyone. Like I had to like pretend and change my personality a little bit just so I could fit in a bit. But, um, so I started, you know, that was my first time drinking. As I mentioned, I was like 14, 15. And then on weekends, it would start being parties every weekend. Every weekend, it would be drink till you throw up or blackout. I, the second time I drank, uh, someone dared me to take nine shots of tequila in 90 seconds. Said I couldn't do it. I was like, yeah, I can. <laughs> and I did. And the rest of the night was real rough for me. Uh, this was before the party even began. There was like four of us. And then everybody showed up, and they're like, who is this dude in the couch, on the couch? who can barely say his own name. Um, I woke up that morning and some random, like, it was a very rich house. It was like a walk-in closet, and I was just asleep in there, apparently. And so first two, like, getting off to a strong start with uh, alcohol. Already lying about what happened, waking up out of a blackout. So starting off strong, you would think uh, that kind of negative reinforcement would do something to me. But I don't have a normal reaction to alcohol, right? This is... 
uh, I want to talk about, you know, not so much the drunk history, but more showing how insane I really was. So um, in high school with alcohol, I, I felt like I was able to fit in, right? Um, I was able to live in the moment, be present, as I always like to say. Um, feel like I can relate to people, and you know, and, and it, it worked, um, at least in the moment. Um, things started to get strained between me and my grandma. Um, you know, she was having some health problems, and I was always out, and we were fighting all the time. So we decided it would be best. I was about sixteen. Um, for her to go live with an aunt, and then we would bring my mom back into the picture. She was currently out of jail um, and was able to live with me, and we were in an apartment. And this was awesome for 16 because my mom could buy alcohol for us. So the party was at my house. Um, so she would buy us booze and all that every time that we wanted to, and somehow I didn't fail out of high school yet, but... Um, I didn't later. That sounded like I was foreshadowing. <laughs> I didn't later. Uh, <laughs> I made it through. But, um, yeah, so, and, you know, it was going like that for a couple months. Then, you know, her with her problem and us always partying. There was one night that things went really dark. Um, I remember clearly, like, we were just out in the living room listening to Kanye West's graduation when that came out. Um, <clears throat> we were listening to music, and she said she came out, and she was like, hey, turn the music down, I got to work in the morning. I was like, sure, and I turned it down to a certain volume, and I was like, is this good? And she's like, yeah. And then, like, I don't know what happened. Ten minutes later, she came out, she's like, I told you to turn that effing music down, and she lost it and grabbed me by the throat and, like, held me against the chair and all these other things and just, like, held me that way, and I was just like, ah, I didn't know what to do. I'm not going to punch my mom, right, is what I was thinking. Um, and my friends pulled her off of me. After that, I went and lived with my friend um, on his couch. They took me in uh, until I was 18. So <clears throat> I remember living on the couch. It was very nice of them. It was pretty rough for me. Uh, they had about 30 cats. Like, that's not an exaggeration. There was cat shit everywhere. All my clothes smelled like cat pee all the time. It was the worst. But eventually I turned 18, and I could get my own apartment. So my friend and I got our own apartment, um, which was great, because party at that house, right? Because I have my own place, and I'm in high school. Everybody wants to go there, so I felt like I was cool. During this time is when I got my first... Um, you know, I got in trouble with the law for the first time. I got a DUI, and to backtrack, I wasn't quite 18 yet, and that's important because it's not showing up on my record, right? I got a diversion kind of thing, so, like, if I do what they say, then I'll be fine. you think that would teach me my lesson, but no, because I'm insane. Uh, <clears throat> to prove it more, one of the times I had to meet with my diversion officer, I showed up, still smelling like alcohol. I was still drunk from the night before. And, I, and he was like, you're blown in a breathalyzer. And I, like, blew. I don't remember what it was. doesn't matter. Point is, I, I was 18 then, and I had to spend a couple nights in jail because of it, just because of breaking that agreement. So things were not going well, <laughs> as you can tell. Um, so I knew how to get out of there. I had to get out of there some way. Um, there like, just the apartment situation and everything was becoming crazy, like, frat house, basically, right? Um, I had no clear picture of a way to get into college like I always wanted to. Um, my grades were okay. Um, 
So I decided to join the military. I joined the Marines, which was, you know, it's the Marines, right? It's the hardest one. But, of course, if you know Marines, Marines like to drink. So that fit in well with me. Um, so, but I, you know, I went into it like this is a start over. I can get away from, you know, this environment, right? Um, and all these people around me and hopefully start fresh. Soon as training was over, though, as soon as boot camp was over and combat training was over, we went into, like, our job training. And during the job training, I got in trouble for drinking. <laughs> I, I it was basically like being drunk under 21 was the issue. So I got like I was a private for a very for a while. And I got in trouble again. Then I got in trouble again. Three NJPs, um, which is very um, you know not to jump ahead, but I got an honorable discharge. That's pretty hard to do with three NJPs. But I was a private for a very long time. Um, couple things uh, that, you know, speak more to the insanity while I was in the military. There was one time, like, and I read this all the time in the book, is like, went to the hospital for nervousness, you know. And just recently, I was reading with my sponsee, we're like, oh, shit, that actually happened to me because I went to the hospital because I was having a full-blown panic attack during one of my, like, hangover episodes. My heart was beating, I felt like an impending sense of death and all this other stuff. And all they did was they just put me in a hospital bed, hooked up an IV, and just left me alone for like three hours. <laughs> and then I was fine. So that's going to the hospital for nervousness. Um, so <clears throat> there was that. And uh, one more story from the military was that I, I remember we, we went on some kind of field trip type of thing to San Francisco. And uh, <clears throat> I, I blacked out. I woke up from the blackout in my hotel bed with, like, glass all over the place. And then um, I was like, holy shit, I need to get out of here. So I went back down to the bus where they were, like, taking us back to base. And I was like, what's going on? Like, we need to get out of here before somebody sees us, right? And I asked the person who was in charge of leading us. I was like, what, what's the holdup? Like, what's wrong? And she just looks at me with this pure judgment and goes, you, you are wrong. <laughs> and I, was, I just remember that shame just hitting me. Um, so because of the shame, I decided to drink about it that night because this is the problem. This is the reason why I feel this way. And I thought this reason would drag me out of it. That's the insanity. Further, I went, um, somehow pulled my shit together enough, at least to get to be a corporal and to get out with an honorable discharge. I was very good at my job. It was just outside of the job that I partied too hard. Um, but I used the GI Bill to go to undergrad. And then after a little bit of undergrad, I decided to become pre-med because I like to do the hard things. Um, so that was going well. I was great at college, great at school. It's just outside of school. <laughs> Very, uh, I work hard, play hard. That mentality has followed me my whole life. Um, during college, I got a DUI. This one's counted. <laughs> So, um, so because of the DUI, I had to do like 12 sessions of group therapy with other people who had like a DUI, um, it's kind of a court ordered thing. Uh, they didn't make you do AA. It was basically this instead of it. And, um, I remember the group therapies and how different it is than coming here in the sense that it was just basically a bunch of people in a room commiserating over the problem rather than talking about the solution. That's a huge thing about AA, which I'll get into later, is that it talks about the solution. 
So, um, you know, with that, I had to get a breathalyzer in my car for two years. I'm, I know a lot of y'all know what I'm talking about, and it's, it's never fun. It's hard to pick up a girl on a date and bring them to whatever dinner when you have to go, like, hold on. Ooh. Right? It's not fun. Um, another thing, oh, man. There was one time I was just like, uh, so we, I lived on the second floor of an apartment and I was just hanging out, smoking a cigarette on a balcony and I don't know what happened. I woke up in the hospital. Apparently I flew back, just like lost my balance and just slammed on the grass, thank God, and hit my head and somehow cracked my shoulder blade. Don't, not, not easy to do, by the way. Um, anyway, so I was in the hospital for three days for that. Had a uh, focal seizure, a little bit of blood inside my inside my brain because of it, um, and you know, as soon as I got out, I was back to drinking. But I was like, "Oh man, I just have shitty luck," you know. <laughs> Whole world's against me. Um, that's how I live my life. I I have a tattoo on my back with the acronym M A T W, Me Against the World. Like I was very like that Tubac album was my favorite album, uh, Me Against the World. That's how I lived. Um, but yeah, so <clears throat> somehow, some way, I got into medical school because my grades were just enough. And, you know, I had the military as my background. That helps a little bit, right? So I went to medical school. Um, same thing. You know, I was really good at the medical stuff. I was really good at studying. I was really good with patients and the clinical aspect. But as soon as I was done, it was like a whole, it was Anthony and there was Tony, is how I always described myself. It's like Jekyll and Hyde, it was Anthony and Tony. Um, but things were a little different. Like we're at, like I was at a stage where I'm no longer in the military, I was no longer an undergrad. It's not cool to party like that anymore, especially when you're about to be a doctor, right? So I got to a point where I was more like hiding what I was doing, right? Um, and just, drinking by myself a lot because, uh, I burning bridges, uh, the people, you know, they weren't putting up with my shit anymore. Either they were focused on medical school and their careers or their family at home because we're getting to that age. So <clears throat> I was going through that. And then, um, this was in Kansas city. And then I moved to Wichita, Wichita, um, you know, the drinking alone got pretty heavy because, uh, it's not much to do in Wichita, really. Um, <laughs> but one good thing about Wichita is I met my now wife, uh, my only wife, uh, but I met her my fourth year of training. And, well, you know, I somehow conned her that I wasn't as bad <laughs> as I let on. Poor, poor woman. Um, so, I mean, don't get me wrong. She saw signs, like the late night drunk calls, these kind of things are like, but... I don't know. She saw through it for some reason. Um, and then, you know, things kind of changed. So I decided to take her with me. I, I was going to residency, a neurology residency at the University of Colorado. And she and um, her son moved in with me. A lot harder to hide your drinking when you have people at home all the time. So that's when things got pretty bad. Um, I didn't drink more than I usually do. If anything, I drank less, but other people could see how freaking bad I was um, and the things I would do. So, you know, <clears throat> I don't know a way to put it. It's just like every single day 
uh, when I was still drinking in residency. It was like I never drank at work, but as soon as I got off work, um, I would drink and see how much I could get away with without pissing my wife off too much, or I wouldn't care and I would just drink more anyway. We would set limits and those kind of things like, all right, no more than a six pack, okay? Which is a lot, right? That's more than binging, but anyway, that's what I talked into. No more than a six pack. Sure enough, once that six pack was gone, I was either driving or I was doing the right thing and walking to a gas station or a liquor store, uh, middle of the night, speed walking before they closed to get something else over and over again. And then I'd stay up till one to two o'clock in the morning, wake up at like five 30 to go to the hospital for rounds. Like, you know, I say I never drank on the job, but there's no way I was still, you know, I sobered up in those three and a half hours. Right. So I would feel like shit the whole day. I'm like, I'm not doing that again. Nope. No way. No way. Then two o'clock would come around. That was my witching hour. And the insanity would creep back in. You're like, you know what? You know what you deserve? You deserve a drink. That's right. That's when it would come in. As soon as I was driving home, I would stop by the liquor store. I'd be like, hey, I'll get something for the wife, too. Make amends, you know? And, like, then we could drink together. Everything would be happy. That's what I would uh, lie to myself about almost every night. So those attempts at moderation just never worked. Um, I would justify it by I wasn't hurting anybody but myself, right? I would mostly stay at home, uh, watch some show or whatever on my laptop, and just drink myself away. Um, I used to say things like, this is how I live in the moment. This is how I de-stress. Because um, I'm a pretty anxious guy. Um, I'm either ruminating about the past or I'm like super worried about the future and different possibilities. So I felt like the only way I could live in the here and now is with alcohol. So <clears throat> that's how this cycle was going forever. And I want to do two quotes uh, about rock bottom, okay, before I get there. These are out of the big book, uh, and my favorite two in there at least. Uh, page 425, one definition of a bottom is the point when the last thing you lost or the next thing you're about to lose is more important to you than booze. And page 325, when he asked why I had avoided AA, I told him it was because I didn't think I had hit bottom. Somehow he didn't laugh, but said, you hit bottom when you stop digging. So my rock bottom <clears throat> is when, um, it was a, no, you know, a night like any others, we, uh, my wife and I went out to trivia at a brewery. Um, I was overdoing it then. We got home. I had six pack, or I don't remember how much I had. Maybe I went and got a 12 pack. And we were fighting about me drinking. Like, you don't need to drink more. You got to work tomorrow. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> over and over. And I was, you can't tell me what to do. I'm my own person, yada, yada, yada. I'm sure you guys know the story. Um, <clears throat> you know, and this time the argument got very heated. So we started yelling, and it got to the point where she feared for her safety um, and called the cops. Rightfully so, because she feared for her safety. Um, <clears throat> so the cops came when the cops came, they took me to jail. I didn't even fight it. I didn't even argue this one. I was like, all right, let's go. Let me finish this beer. <laughs> it's funny, but sad. Uh, and you know, I, so I get into the jail. It's not my first time. I've been in the drunk tanks several times along the way. Luckily those don't stay on your record. I'm just barely like, you know, 
ducking and diving from all these reasons that I should not still be a doctor. You know what I mean? Um, and just something out there is keeping me safe, um, keeping me out of jail, keeping me from doing something too irreparable. And I thought this was the time that that's no longer the case. Um, <clears throat> so, I'm, like, I'm going to get a domestic dispute or violence or any something like that on my record, a felony. And what am I going to do now? There's no coming back from that. So, all this is going through my mind. I'm in the holding cell with, like, you know, 30 other people. And I'm just trying to, like, hide myself, put the thin sheet over my head. <laughs> I'm looking at the brick wall. And on the brick wall is a bloody booger just staring at me in the face. And I was like, that is very apropos and a perfect symbol for what is going on right now. So, and I try to turn, turn the other way, and there's a dude taking a shit over there. So, <laughs> I'm going back to the booger. Um, so, it was a very miserable time, as you can imagine. I'm feeling pretty dark about this. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a Friday. Um, I didn't blow zeros enough by the end of the day on Friday, so I couldn't see the judge. And for a domestic dispute, you have to see the judge and get bail before, or whatever the decision is, before you get out of there. So I had to stay until Monday. And I had to work all weekend. I'm like, there goes my job. I, my whole career that I've been working for for the last, you know, at this time, like 12 years, if you count the military into it, like to get to college and the college to get to med school and med school to get to residency. All that's gone. My family's gone. My wife's gone. My stepson's gone. My dog is gone. My, even my two cats are gone. Whole family's gone. <clears throat> I'm just, this is my bottom. Cried uh, in my, like, it's, you know, COVID times. So for most of it, I was by myself. So I had all this alone time. So I was either awake. I talked my uh, to someone who was like, hey, does anybody have a book or anything? <laughs> like, because you're in there for 23 hours at a time. Anything to keep my mind out of it. So I was either reading, crying, or sleeping. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, it turns out that the charges that the police officer put down weren't entirely true. They kind of over-exaggerated things. And, well, um, through the help of my wife as well, they were dropped. So somehow nothing is on my record for this. Rightfully, wrongfully, I don't know. But nothing's on my record. And I had a decision made. This was my fork in the road. This was my, all right, family, career, all these things, everything that I wanted to be. What, and what I did was against my own moral code. That's my bottom. Not like going to jail. I've been to jail before. Wasn't a big, wasn't a big deal, right? Um, it was that I broke my moral code, that I did something that I hate, that I was disgusted with. I ended up like my mom. Um, so going that way, or I could just keep drinking and just say, fuck this life, I'm over it, and drink myself to death. It was a very real struggle. Shouldn't be. On paper, that seems like a very easy decision, right? It wasn't. But I decided to go with, I'm going to stay sober for now, see what happens. Like, <laughs> doesn't seem like I'm going to get in trouble somehow, like, I talked to my program director, and he basically said, like, listen, you got to go to this physician help program kind of thing where it's like a monitoring thing, but through your job instead of the courts, and do what they say, and then you won't have anything wrong. Um, nothing will be, like, permit. I was like, okay, sure. 
So I stayed sober. And, um, you know, and I talked with my wife, and, you know, she's amazing, forgiving. She took me back, and don't know why. She just supported me the whole way. Um, so, at this point, I am, um, you know, and, and the other part about, like, the moral bankruptcy and the, you know, just the rock bottom of it, and then I'll move to what it's like now, um, is, like, my mom died as well. She was, I think it was, like, 46, died from this disease, uh, just heart trouble from it, cardiomyopathy from alcohol and other drugs. And I remember, um, this was in medical school, uh, it was around Christmas, it was like December 23rd, and she's not doing well. And I was at my cousin's, and my cousin said, like, hey, do you want to Skype, at the time, <laughs> Skype, uh, with your mom? And I was like, let me think about it, because I didn't want to. I was like, no, <laughs> I still have, like, all these resentments for her, right? And I was like, well... You know, she's not doing well. This might be the last time you get to talk to her. And who are you to take someone's ability to talk to their only son away? So I decided to do it. It was very superficial, but it was pleasant enough, right? And we talked for like 30, 40 minutes, mostly about her medical stuff, because I had some medical knowledge. But uh, the next day, she died. The next day. So this close to not being able to do it. And that would have weighed heavier, and I don't know if I could have come back from that either. So after I got out, my wife took me back. Um, I was peeing in a cup uh, for the alcohol, and that was keeping me sober. Thank God for that, too. Like, I know it's annoying if you're still doing it now. It's the worst. It costs money. It's a pain in the ass. You have to get there and try to find ways to have it not mess up your job and stuff like that. But that kept me sober, for sure. Um, you know, and I just, I said I would go to these weekly, uh, it's basically like a, healthy healthcare professional AA once a week. And, you know, I, I'm relatively social and I would share my experience and stuff like that, but the rest of it, you know, that's for other people. That's for the patients, right? I'm different. I'm, I'm terminally unique. I can figure this out. I would even tell patients who are alcoholics too, you should get AA. I can show you a meeting, like, and I'll Google it, Denver AA. But not for me. No, no, no. Um, so, uh, it's about four months of this, just white knuckling. I am pissy the whole time, restless, irritable, discontent. Um, <clears throat> then, you know, I start broaching the subject cause like I might get off of this monitoring early cause you know, I used to say everything's bad luck for me, but clearly not. Uh, but, uh, so I started talking about like what's going to happen when I'm off monitoring. I started broaching the subject like, well, you know, like maybe just a couple drinks. We'll see how it goes, right? Start drinking like a gentleman. And then that started an argument. Like, we're arguing about drinking. I'm not even drinking. And I'm pissed off. And I was like, oh, my God, how long do I have to prove myself? Four months? I haven't gotten four months since boot camp. Like, come on. And I had one of those healthcare AAs at that, that night. That night, I'm steaming, I'm halfway listening, but for whatever reason, my ears were open. Obviously, my ears were open, but I was listening at the right time. And someone was talking about drinking like a gentleman. I heard those words because I just thought them, and I started listening. And this person described about him going back out 
and trying to moderate and how poorly it went. And then a bunch of other people started chiming in about how poorly it went for them. I was like, okay, this has got to be a sign. Like, this is not going to go well for me. And before I could stop myself, I started typing to, because it's a Zoom meeting, um, typing to someone that I had respect for, a very calm, collected person who seemed to have a lot of recovery and what I wanted, right? And I asked if he was looking for sponsees and if he'd be willing to meet. He was. So I met with him. That's when I met my sponsor. And I, I knew I was, I was nervous leading up to it because I don't want to waste anybody's time, right? I don't want to just bullshit this guy, you know, and be like, no, I'm good. Never mind. Thanks for all your help. So I was like, if you meet with this person, you got to do it is how, is how I thought about it. So I met with him. He shared his story. I was, you know, sharing with another alcoholic. I could tell that he knew what I was saying. He really understood. And I understood what he was saying. So, you know, and he said, what, one of the many things he said, which, uh, you know, comes down to a lot of people, right? But um, is that I can't fix my broken brain with my broken brain. For whatever reason, that helped me a lot. So, you know, we started meeting, and we started reading the big book. I knew right away, like with that second step, I've been reading it at the meetings and such. Like, I'm going to struggle with the God thing, for sure. Not me. I, I don't do religion. I grew up Catholic. Um, I, I'm a scientist, right? Uh, I'm a physician scientist. I don't believe in that. Um, I have a problem with religion as like an institution and all this other stuff. There's no way. I have no problems at this time. You know, and I was just putting that out there. He's like, all right, we'll deal with it when we get there. I was like, okay, just letting you know. <laughs> I was like, fine. <laughs> anyway, um, but after that happened, he said, you need to start going to in-person meetings. And as soon as I walked in, it's like, it's corny. It's like coming home. Because I was like, man, I am here. I'm actually doing this. I just let go. I let go. I surrender. I can do this. I can't do it on my own. I'm just going to do whatever these people say. And just like not carrying that burden, not carrying that stress really made a difference. Um, You know, I started going full in on AA, doing everything people suggested. It didn't matter who it was. I had so many mentors and everything in it. And then, you know, we got to the second, you know, the God concept and all that. You know, make it of your own conception. That was huge for me. We read the uh, spiritual, like the appendix on the spiritual uh, awakening about how your own thing, your own concept of God. So, like many people, I used the kind of concept of AA as my higher power. The best part that worked for me is because I go, being in medicine, I go through evidence-based medicine. The best treatment for alcoholism and to stay sober is 12-step facilitation. More than medications, more than therapy, more than cognitive behavioral therapy. All those things are helpful, don't get me wrong. But the best one by a statistical significant difference is 12-step facilitation in AA. Knowing that, I was like, boom, there's my higher power. That's all I needed. So the science behind it, that's what I believed in. To start off with. (laughs) But that allowed me to give in. I was like, well, shit, if science says it, I'm just going to do all the things that my uh, sponsor is making me do. Like these gratitude lists that I can't stand. 
Got to keep coming up with new shit every single day about what I'm grateful for. Hated it. I think he might be on the Zoom call right now, so I hope he hears that. Uh, <laughs> but it's helpful, right? Helpful in the way that you are doing something. You are giving up. You are not in control. And that was the point, is for me to let go of control. Um, so I did that, and I did all the other things that were suggested. I tried meditation. I still try it. It's very hard. Very hard. It's one of those things you got to practice all the time to shut your brain up and just like concentrate on being in the moment. But I tried, and all these little things help. The rest of the steps for me, you know, um, for my resentments, uh, making amends, all of them kind of boiled down to my own selfishness. Um, pretty much all of them. If you look at, like, my part in it, selfishness, self-seeking, selfishness, self-seeking. I didn't realize I was so selfish, but I am. That's um, not too surprising, I guess. So that's, you know, <clears throat> the biggest thing I had to work on. And in addition to meetings, and I've been deep diving into podcasts. Sobercast, for, I, you know, not to <laughs> advertise for someone, but listening to speaker meetings, listening to people who not only have a significant amount of time, like 30 plus years, or like Dick over there who has over 40 years, um, <laughs> someone who only has a year and some change, hearing it on both sides of the scale, and how the commonality of <laughs> all the shares and all the stories it's what brings us all together. Um, <clears throat> other things is, I remember when I first got sober, it was just like, I'm never going to have fun again. This is going to be a bleak life. I'm staring down a dark hallway. There might be a dim light at the end of the tunnel, but there's nothing to do between now and then. Um, and you know, and it was kind of proven early on in my sobriety before I really came into AA. Um, I used to like going to comedy, or I still like going to comedy shows. Um, and I went to one a few months in, and it was like at a bar, and I was fucking miserable. It was not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, man, I can't let loose. Like, this is not the same. Um, everybody else is having fun. I'm not. It's kind of like when I was a kid again. Like, everybody else seems to be having it easy. Everybody's having fun. I'm just trying to fit in, trying to be like everyone else. But later on, say nine months into sobriety, I went to another show. We had free tickets, so I went and actually had a great time. I was able to let loose. There's one thing about sharing your innermost thoughts, hopes, fears all the time. Like, you don't care about laughing in public, right? You have no, <laughs> all, all that goes away. Um, I don't know why. I thought you're at a comedy show. Why can't you laugh in public? Like, that's the point. But uh, I don't know. I had kind of like self-consciousness about it. But so um, then as this has gone along and only in these 17 months alone, the promises have come true for me. My relationship with my wife, who I owe so much to, stay with me. She has supported me through this unbelievably. Like she changed my life. If she didn't call the cops that night. I would be fucked right now. I would be in jail. I would might be dead. Could be. I know I want to be a doctor. That's for damn sure. Um, sorry for the language. There's kids here. My bad. Um, I try not to. Uh, anyway, it, and it's all because of her. So my relationship with her is so much better. My stepson, I haven't even mentioned him. Uh, you know, when I was hungover all the time, it's hard not to be irritable when you have a little preteen, right? Around all the time, making a lot of noise. That isn't the best for when you're hungover. 
Um, things are great now. I try to be more understanding, you know, I try to pause when agitated. Um, and we have a great relationship. And now we just had a baby. Yeah. About three and a half weeks ago. You know, and this was a long time coming. We tried to have a kid for over two years. And it just wasn't in the cards. And thank God for that, too. Because if I was, if I was dealing with a baby while I was still drinking, it would not have gone well. Would have been everything that I didn't want to be. I didn't have a dad growing up, right? I didn't want to be an absent father. Now I can be a present father. That's just being able to hold my son and just hang out on the couch and be present is amazing to me. I couldn't do that before. I'd be thinking like, okay, yeah, this, he's cute and all, but like, let's go do something. Like, <laughs> I get to just be there. Not only that, you know, I got a great career lined up. Um, and I think most of all, I feel connected. I don't, you know, sometimes I'll feel that hole, that kind of emptiness, but all I need to do is come to a meeting or work with someone else and I feel connected again. And that really the spirituality for me is being connected with other people. And I didn't have that before. There's unexpected promises as well. This last, uh, this past summer through the aid of my wife, I, there's a wild story. Okay, so, uh, we knew what my dad's name was. We had an idea of it. We didn't know the spelling, but we knew his name. And my wife just, like, went through Facebook and was just, like, going through some, like, CSI stuff, basically. Uh, and found a guy who had been in Phoenix where I was born around that time. And it was like, I think this might be him. And he kind of looked like me. And she reached out to him. And he, after a couple months, he was like, listen, I didn't know if I should reach back out. It sounded like a scam, to be honest, which is understandable. Um, he reached back out and then connected with me. So the timing lined up from what he could remember of my mom. Things lined up. So we got a genetic test. We did cheek swab, sentiment, and we are 99.9999% match. So I found my dad. That was unexpected. He's 35 years old. I didn't expect that ever to happen. So, point is, half measured availed me nothing. I can't, I'm not, I'm a full measure kind of guy. Whether it be, you know, drinking, whether it be medicine, whether it be anything, I go full hard in the paint. And that's how I am with AA. Um, I got to be all the way in. When I step off the pedal, those voices come back that says, do I really need this anymore? I'd be fine with just a couple of drinks, right? And those temptations come back. They do still. And I imagine they will for pretty much ever. Like, I'd see a brewery. There's a brewery right over there. Every AA home group I have has a brewery next door. I don't know why. But um, I'm like, wouldn't it be nice to have a couple of drinks? But now I can pause and be like, what would really happen? What would happen is I'd have a couple of drinks, and then I'd stop at this liquor store and grab whatever else to take home then that wouldn't be enough. Then I'd walk from the mile or two that I live on Joy, walk back over here, get some more, and then on and on and on. And who knows when it would stop this time? I don't know if it ever would. I don't want to find out. So with the daily program that I try to do now is trying to keep the step work. Like I'm through the steps, but that doesn't mean I'm done, right? When things come up, when I know things are getting heated and in a conversation, whether at work, at home, what have you, I take a break. 
which is very hard, but I try to take a break. I think about what is my part in this? Why do I feel this way? Why am I feeling anxious? Um, <clears throat> I try to identify it, and I'll make an amends on the spot, usually to my wife. Because <laughs> I'm usually wrong. Um, but, you know, beyond that, like when I'm feeling anxious about the future, you know, having a baby, you're worrying about all the things that could go wrong and everything like that. And in the book, when it's talking about step 10, it asks us to watch for those feelings, to ask for them to be taken away, and to turn our thoughts to another alcoholic or just anybody that you can help. That 100% works for me. I can just take a break, see how I can be helpful in whatever situation that's around me. And then when I turn back to whatever thing that was stressing me out, it's usually not a big deal. <laughs> or I found a solution. So AA allowed me to feel that sense of ease and comfort that alcohol used to give me before it became, you know, a crippling thing. <laughs> and I can feel like I'm connected with that uh, sense of interconnectedness. I know not to rest on my laurels. Um, that's the commonality I hear every time somebody comes back in. It's like, oh, they stopped going to meetings or they stopped talking to people. Um, <clears throat> I can't let that happen. My entire life depends on it. I have too many people depending on me. Um, can't let that happen. So I have to be connected. I have to come to meetings. Now that you know we have a newborn, I haven't been able to come to as many in-person meetings as I like to, but I'm still doing Zoom meetings. Um, I come here on Thursdays. We go to um, a meeting on Friday. I'm working with a sponsee. We go to meetings together. And, you know, I'm still doing the work. Because otherwise, the further I get away, again, those voices will come back. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I know that AA works simply by coming to meetings and seeing it work. And also by its very existence, right? How many times are... So back in the 30s when this first became a thing, right, there used to be social clubs and all these things that were very prevalent at the time. Not Most of those are gone away. AA is still here. Um, and it hasn't been, and it's been on its own without funding, without outside influence. And that itself, like, it saved my life, my marriage, my family, my career. Forever grateful that the doors were open at the right time. So by me coming to meetings as much as I can, I can make sure that they are open for someone else. And the only thing I can hope for in, in this talk is that I said something that somebody might hear and can apply to themselves and help with their own recovery. It's not about feeling, patting myself on the back just for 17 months. Like, that's not that much in the scheme of things, right? But hopefully somebody can hear something that'll help with them. And with that, pass on and take another day. I'm Anthony, and I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.